Tonight we're going to talk about the third discourse, burning. We've looked at first um, the Buddha's first formal teaching, Dhammachaka Pavantana Sutta, setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. Then we looked at Anatalakana, um, the not-self-characteristic, which was taught five days later. And then we move on to what is regarded as the third discourse, although in fact he gave talks in between times. And for this we have to have a bit of a backstory. Um, sometimes the backstory takes an entire talk. Um, I quite like it, but sometimes people complain. <laughs> because instead of being esoteric, it's just storytelling. So Story. We, we like stories. Yeah. I think. Story. Story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do it. <laughs> In this case, this one is called Preparing the Fire. Uh, because the third discourse, usually called the, the Fire Sermon or the Fire Discourse, uh, you could translate it simply as burning. Um, and there is. It's, it, it, the build-up to it, I find very interesting, because it's weird. Weird. It's weird. Um, With a Y. <laughs> yes, but don't forget the W. Um, first of all, we left we left the Buddha and, he, and his five disciples. They're now all arahants, and they're living at Isipatana. And. Um, the job's done, they're all fully enlightened, so they're kind of feeling pretty chilled, and they're not, you know, rushing off anywhere, and so they're, they're just living there. And um, uh, Isipatana is just north of Baranasi, which is a major merchant city, and um, in living in this city, there is a septi, um, usually translated as banker but probably more like the head of the banker's guild so basically someone who works in high finance at the time and this banker had a son called Yasa and he was brought up in great luxury of course and he is a young man and he lives in this big room and he's attended by beautiful female attendants who basically look after him uh, in all sorts of ways, which we won't go into. And one night they're all sleeping in the same room and he wakes up in the middle of the night and he looks around and he sees all these beautiful women sleeping there and he's suddenly overcome by horror and dread. Um, he has um, what in the in the later tradition would be called dukkha jnana. Dukkha, of course, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, etc., pain. And jnana is understanding or knowledge. Um, and it sounds like he had a stro- very strong case of adinava jnana and nibbana jnana. Adinava is danger, disadvantage, downside suddenly seeing the disadvantage or the downside of any situation and Nibbida is disenchantment um, and the discourse says um, the downside the adinava of what he saw became apparent and his heart settled upon disenchantment Nibbida and he says the terror, the horror now what he saw was the human body. But he saw it without any filters of enchantment. So he's living in a world which is dominated by beauty. Um, He's particularly fond of female beauty. And of course he's completely caught up in this world. And then quite unexpectedly, without any warning, no preparation, he just happens to wake up in the middle of the night, his eyes fall upon these bodies sleeping there, and all the illusions drop away and all he sees is the human body 
which is actually rather weird when you consider it, when you look at it. Um, now, basically, he's not, he's not, he hasn't turned into a Puritan. It's just that he suddenly sees that a body is just blood, bones, flesh, and mess. And that's all it is. Um, so he has this profound existential shock, of, of, um, which is, as I say, completely unprepared for. And as a result, he's in a state of shock, would it be both mental and physical, and he stumbles out of the house into the city, um, through the streets, and then out of the city where according to the text and the, the, the text is the Mahavagga of the Vinaya Pitaka it's the first history of the Sangha the earliest history so these stories come from there so he he leaves the, um, the city via the gate aided by the non-humans Amanusa according to the text who help him out um, now um, we kind of listen, you know, read this or listen to this and think, oh yeah, you walk through the gate and apparently somebody helped him. But you got to... Hmm? The non-humans, the Atmanusa, so some kind of spirits. But keep in mind that this is an ancient Indian city. At night, the gates are closed and locked. Um, for security purposes, every outside every gate, there would be a kind of basic um, um, motel or um, whatever for travellers who arrived after sunset, when the gates were shut, so they could stay there overnight. There is no way those gates would be opened; it's just too dangerous. The gates are carefully guarded by the troops. And each gate is also guarded by spirits. And the way that this was done, particularly for city gates, which are very important, is that um, either a powerful local spirit would be captured in some way and trapped there with the use of an image or something, or if they couldn't manage that, they would execute criminals at the gate and bury them. And there vengeful ghosts would be guardians of the gate. So these spirits who are at the gates are not happy, friendly spirits at all. And yet they help him through and he's getting through a locked gate with lots of human guards. But somehow he gets through. So you can see that we're in the realm of fairy story here. So he stumbles out of the city and um, one would presume a banker's house would have a few guards and locks on it too they would wouldn't they Yeah, and well paid individuals mm. who were guarding them um, gates of course are important because they're, they're liminal places they're, they're places of transition uh, to move through a gate is to move from one state to another um, so they're places of potentiality where what is normally taken for granted as real becomes unstuck and something else can emerge. So I think this whole story of the gate is kind of emphasising this transformative process which is going on for Yasa. So he wanders north, mumbling the terror, the horror, and um, happens to stumble into the Buddha. He's doing walking meditation. This is not long before dawn. And the Buddha's got up early and he's doing his walking meditation. And the Buddha sees him coming and hears him mumbling. And he says, this is not terrible, not horrifying. Come, Yasa, and I will teach you Dharma. So the Buddha sees Yasa and immediately sees someone whose mind is ripe as a result of this profound shock. Everything that he thinks is real turns out not to be. Everything that he thinks is worth holding on to turns out not to be. And in this state of profound shock, 
the Buddha sees this is someone who's ready for the teaching. So the Buddha gives progressive instruction of dana, sila. So dana is generosity, sila is ethics, and then um, sagga, the heavens. Now, the heavens mean if you are generous and if you are ethical, you are doing um, good things. Um, so your karma is good so your vipaka, the ripening of these actions are very positive and they'll give you noticeable benefits in a recognisable form in terms of living a good life and of course this gets extended beyond death, life after life, taken for granted heavens so heaven is basically having a good time um, without any restriction so basically these are the mundane benefits of leading a good life uh, then he talks about the danger or disadvantage in sensual stimulation and the benefits of letting go or renunciation um, and finally when and so Anyasa is listening to this so this is progressive instruction first at the basics and with the progressive instruction you give a very basic teaching and then you check Are you have you got that like, is that, has it, have you connected with that? And maybe you stop there because that's as far as the person can go. But if they can go a step further, you take it the next step. And if you think, okay, they've got that and they're ready to go further, you take it the next step. So this progressive instruction is a, is a, a kind of graded um, uh, introduction into the Dharma, uh, which is a basic template that a lot of the traditions use. Anyway, finally, when Yasa's heart was quite ready, receptive, free from hindrances, eager and trustful, unquote, then the Buddha hits him with the four truths. Dukkha, its arising, its cessation and the path. So the Buddha teaches him the same thing that he taught the five ascetics after he had opened them up with the middle way. Here he teaches Yasa, who's a layman, after he's opened him up with these with this progressive instruction and as a result Yasa attains the first stage of awakening he sees the Dharma ah oh, this is what's going on and he's um, enlightened uh, at least to the, the first stage now this is the first time that this idea of progressive instruction is mentioned but the Buddha uses it now again and again and again and um, it's like the Buddha is working on he must have been thinking okay how can I spread this further I've got the five but I have to teach other people as well how am I going to do that so he works out this template of progressive instruction and Yasa is the guinea pig so there's a sense in which the Buddha has been waiting for him to turn up and of course Yasa is a lay person so this is the first lay person who is being taught serious dharma and when it's done, bang, the first lay person to attain the first stage of awakening. So, um, Yasa's okay. He's been taken care of. Meanwhile, time has passed. The household has woken up. And people realise that the, the young man of the household, the heir to the fortune, has vanished. And of course there's pandemonium. There's chaos and everyone's desperately searching for him. Has he been killed? Has he been kidnapped? How could he have just vanished? What's going on? So Yasa's father, presumably at the head of something of a posse, is going out in search of his son and also heads north and also meets the Buddha. Um, now, the Buddha, by this stage, you know, by this stage there's daylight, they've had breakfast, they're sitting around. So he's, there's the Buddha sitting there and the five companions plus Yasa. And then Yasa's father coming with a posse from the distance and the Buddha thinks, I should try to avoid distracting Yasa Senior, the father. So what he does is he exercises his shamanic power 
and he causes Yasa, who's sitting right there, to disappear, to vanish. Now this is interesting because it shows Buddha as shaman. And this is a side of the Buddha's character which is, tends to be written out, but it was very much part of his, uh, his identity. So he calms down Yasa's father and gives him progressive instruction. And sure enough, um, he also attains stream entry and he becomes the first person to take refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, which is what we chant each night. So he's the first person to do that. Um, and so you can see that inst- the institution of Buddhism is beginning to take shape. Um, along with lay practitioners. Now, during this talk, Yasa is listening to the talk and he's reviewing his understanding as, as he goes through it. And as a result, um, he attains full awakening as he's sitting there. So the text says, Then Yasa, son of a good family, as the Dharma was being taught, reviewed the degrees to which he had seen and experienced, and by not clinging, his heart was liberated from the taints. So he reviewed the degrees which he had seen and experienced. If those of you who are familiar with the system of jnanas, of insight knowledges, know that there's one called review, Pachavekana, and this is the first mention of it in, in the text. Um, and it's interesting that awakening is something that can be thought about, considered, reviewed. So there's there's a rationality within this. This understanding that we're developing, it's direct, it's intuitive, but there's also a rationality in it. Um, and the two sides of it often, sometimes there's a struggle between them. Too much imposition of rationality kills the experience. Not enough rationality makes it meaningless and chaotic. Anyway, um, so Yasa ordains, and now he's a bhikkhu, and then um, word of this spreads in the city. Yasa's friends, four of his friends come out to uh, visit him, and then they become they, ordain, they, get, they convert, they ordain, and they become fully awakened. Um, others come, and basically the word is spreading, and you notice it's spreading throughout the merchants of Baranasi. And this is really important. The Buddha was very early on realised that if he was going to make a go of it in terms of building something big, he needed people with money. <laughs> and he targets them immediately <laughs> the first lay people he goes for these are the commercial elite of a commercial city sounds like a side sounds like a side or the side of the model <laughs> um, and finally when there were 60 arahants plus the Buddha so making 61 so 60 fully awakened ones he sends them out into the world um, and then you get the famous passage you know don't go by two by two but singly and go off for the benefit of the many the welfare of the many and so on and so forth Um, which is very I find very interesting because um, these people are very new like they're we don't know how long the Buddha spent there weeks maybe months but they're very new they're fully awakened but there's they're quite and a lot of them are very young but he just sends them out. You just go off and do whatever you do. And don't even, not even go in, in pairs in a system of, of control. I'll watch you, you watch me. If he does anything bad, report back to the side. The side would do that. <laughs> but no, it's one by one. In other words, he has complete confidence in these people. Complete faith in them. And you just go and do it. Off you go. The Buddha himself says, I shall go to Uruvela to Sena Nigama, to teach the Dharma. So he sends everybody else out to wander around the world, but the Buddha has a very specific place that he intends to go to. Um, and it's interesting that, although he's, the Buddha is very successful in Badanasi, 
He doesn't stay there. Or apparently, nor does he return. I don't know of any other stories about him which are set in Badanasi. He starts there. He has a spectacular success. But then he leaves. And he doesn't come back. Um, So why not? Possibly because it just wasn't important enough. Um, Badanasi was on the borderland between the two rival kingdoms of Magadha to the east and Kosala to the west. And in fact there, there were wars fought between them and sometimes one side would grab it and sometimes the other side would grab it. At this point it belongs to um, I think to Magadha it was the dowry of the sister I think, either the sister or the daughter but I think at this time the sister of King Pasanadi of Kosala who gave, and his sister married the king of Magadha Bimbisara and Badanasi was the dowry so at this point it belonged to Magadha but later it'll be, it'll be fought over um, and the Buddha heads east toward Magadha which again is one of the two major kingdoms it's also the area that he's familiar with. He's familiar with this. He's been there before. Um, and he had, had apparently met King Bimbisara before, according to legend. So he's going to the big city in an area that he's already familiar with and where people know him. They don't know him as the Buddha, but they know him because he's, he's, he's been there before. How did he meet Bimbisara? Uh, when, he, when he first came south, southwest. Yeah, when he was wandering ascetic. Uh, possibly before he actually began his ascetic practices. Possibly when he was on the way to find a place where he could do ascetic practices. Um, and maybe this is rather like, well, maybe what was happening was he wanted to go to the centre of things. He was planning to build an empire. If you're a, you know, a big, you strike it big as a guru, guru in say Australia, and if you want to hit the big time, what do you do? Do you straight stay in Australia? No, you go to the US. Because if you make it big there, you can spread across the planet. And I think the Buddha was basically he had the same business plan. And in fact, later on. When he gets an offer to go to Kosala by a rich merchant from um, Savati, he quickly abandons Magadha and he heads to and makes his headquarters in Kosala, which was the biggest kingdom. So the so the Buddha is a man with a strategy. He's got a plan. He's picked up this idea of teaching. At first, he thought, I don't know if it's even possible. It works at least for all these crazy ascetics. Then he's trying to work out, but, how, but can I include lay people here? And sure enough, it works. Okay, now I've got a product and I can market this. I'm ready now. So off he goes to the big smoke. But before he goes, he's got an important errand. Um, because he doesn't go to Rajigaha, which is the big the capital, he goes to a small district called Sena Nigama at Uruvela. Um, and this is on the, uh, an area in the Gaia area on the banks of the Uruvela River, not far from where he was awakened. So he knows this area. And he enters the territory of the three dreadlocks wearers, the Jatila. These are ascetics who have dreadlocks um, and they're brothers. Um, each of them are called Kasapa, which probably means that they were Brahmins. Uh, and there was Kasapa of Uruvela, who was head of 500 ascetics, Kasapa of the river, Nadi Kasapa, head of 300 ascetics, and Kasapa of Gaya, Gaya Kasapa, head of 200 ascetics. So these are three brothers, each of whom um, are major teachers in their own right, and they have these communities. Um, 
and um, they uh, they teach a form of asceticism. Um, Kasapa of Uruvela is the eldest brother, and he's upriver of the others. And the Buddha starts with him. He's going to see Kasapa. He's got a very clear plan. This is the man who I'm going to see. Um, now he's nearest because he's located on the near side of the Naranjana River and he's also the most important. So again, go, go to the top. Don't waste your time with the juniors. He's going to the number one dreadlocks ascetic. And so the Buddha has a, is a man with a plan and then we see the plan unfold. And the plan is seriously weird. So he goes to the hermitage of Kasaba of Uruvela and so he strides in and there's this um, some kind of um, building they've got there, some kind of central um, shrine room which is a fire chamber. These are fire worshipping ascetics. Um, so they're um, oh, we've got notes here about him. Um, these guys are the three Kasapa brothers are Brahmins so what they, they're close to the Vedic tradition but they're not orthodox um, they they practice a kind of heterodox asceticism uh, which is strongly shamanic in its nature um, but we'll, we'll get to that and they worship fire and so their central one of their central holy places is the fire chamber where they keep the fire and this is guarded by a Naga Raja a royal Naga Naga is a snake and it's also a spirit um, um, Nagas are powerful spirits who are associated with the elements of earth, fire and water they live in water or under the earth. They are shapeshifters. They can appear in any form. Um, they're not comfortable in air element. They're ground creatures. Uh, and they, one way in which they turn up later in the tradition, if you know Mahayana Buddhism, have you heard of Nagarjuna? Mm -hmm. So Naga Arjuna. And according to legend, Nagarjuna received his teachings from the Nagas. He descended into the earth and received esoteric teachings from the Nagas. So Nagas are quite important spirits. Anyway, uh, the Buddha rocks up and he says to Kasapa, Kasapa, if you have no objection, I would like to spend one night in your fire chamber. So the Buddha rolls into town goes to the boss and said, look, if, 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 if you don't mind, I'd like to spend the night in your fire chamber. So Kasapa rolls his eyes and he kind of looks at his mates and he kind of smiles and he says, I have no objection, great Samana. Now you notice he calls him great Samana. A Samana is um, a practitioner who's not Brahman. So these are the heterodox. But he calls him Maha Samana. As soon as he sees him, he knows this guy is special. He's radiating the power of his awakening. Plus he's physically very impressive character. And he rolls into town and he says, I'd like to spend the night in your fire chamber. This is basically going up to the boss and openly challenging him. Um, and so Kasapa says, I have no objection, great Samana, but there is a savage royal Naga there. He has supernormal powers... Mm -hmm. He is venomous, fearfully poisonous, and quite capable of killing you. So, in other words, okay, you can spend the night there, but do you understand what you're letting yourself in for? Um, and the Buddha says, no problem. So he goes into the fire chamber and he starts meditating. Um, the Naga, who's whose residence this is. Now basically what the Buddha has just done is walk uninvited and unannounced into the living room of a powerful and 
not very good-tempered spirit and who doesn't like this nonsense at all. So he gets the, the, the Naga gets very pissed off and he produces smoke and flame to indicate that he's a bit irritated. And so the Buddha is, is sitting there and he produces smoke and flame. You can do it, I can do it. But he does it carefully so that the Naga is not harmed. Um, the Naga angrily blazes up in fire, in flame. And so the Buddha enters into the fire element and he also blazes up in flame. And the text says, With both of them ablaze, it was like the fire chamber itself was in flames, burning and blazing. So all of these ascetics, 500 of them, they're all sitting around because this is everybody wants to see this. And their whole fire chamber is just burning away, huge flames. <laughs> they're looking at this thinking, wow, we haven't seen this before. <laughs> this is interesting. Um, and they say, the great Samana, who is so beautiful, and it's interesting, that people. this is what people would say about the Buddha when they met him. The great Samana, who is so beautiful, is being destroyed by the Naga. Anyway, in the morning, flames have died down. Of course, the place is still there. These are shamanic, magical flames. And out of the door steps the Buddha, completely unharmed, totally cool. And he's carrying his bowl, as usual, because he's a, a, he's a bhikkhu, he's a beggar. He walks up to Kasapa and stands in front of him. And Kasapa looks into the bowl, and there's the ferocious royal naga, this tiny little snake all curled up. <laughs> Completely harmless. <laughs> and he, and um, the Buddha explains to Kasapa how the naga's fire was exhausted by fire. So, fighting fire with fire. Um, and Kasapa doesn't say anything, but he thinks to himself, this this guy is very powerful, but he's not an arahant like I am. He's not fully awakened like I am. Um, now, what's happening, of course, is the Buddha is acting as a shaman. In entering into that fire chamber, he's deliberately challenging the Naga. It's no accident. This is quite deliberate and very, quite macho. Come out and fight. Um, and in winning and showing his mastery over the fire element, he's also challenging Kasapa, but indirectly. So Kasapa's practice revolves around fire element, and the Buddha is in effect saying, without actually saying the words, I am much more powerful than you are, and therefore superior. So this is the challenge that Kasapa is receiving. Um, it's basically the Buddha is showing himself to be a master of one-upmanship. Um, but Kasapa is impressed, but he's not converted. And the reason why is because he feels that power is one thing, but awakening is another. Okay, this guy is incredibly powerful. In fact, he's so powerful... The sooner we get rid of him, the better. But, so what? That doesn't mean he's awakened. In brackets, like me. Close brackets. So, um, he apparently welcomes the Buddha into the community as an honoured guest, but he does not take the Buddha's superior power as evidence of awakening. Now, that instinct is very good. And people often confuse power with awakening. So you can have a guru who can manifest all sorts of power, be incredibly charismatic, mm -hmm. and people think, oh, he's got these powers, he must be awakened. But it's complete bullshit. Power is power. Awakening is awakening. They're not the same thing. Uh, and Kasapan knows that. So he's, he's, he's someone, he's a man of wisdom. 
and you can see why the Buddha wants him because what, what the Buddha is doing is he wants to convert this guy he really wants him in, in the company um, but Kasapa is also very stubborn which reminds us of course of the Buddha before his awakening he was very stubborn too uh, he can't help but feel that the Buddha knows exactly who he's dealing with um, in a sense he's again it's he's like he's dealing with his pre-enlightenment self the way he, he what he was like except this guy's in a different tradition so um, the problem problem Kasapa has is he's deluded about the nature of awakening he thinks he's awakened but he's not and the Buddha needs to hammer this out this get this view out of his mind now when the Buddha was dealing with the five ascetics how he opened them up was by the middle way here he's got a different person in a different context and he's using a completely different method and it's really interesting because it's not a method he uses again these are very weird stories but for Kasapa he thinks this is the way I've got to hammer this guy and so he does so the Buddha takes up residence in a jungle thicket near Kasapa's hermitage. You notice that Kasapa, on the one hand, treats him as an honoured guest, but on the other hand, keeps him at arm's length. He doesn't want him too close. It's like there's a wariness in the relationship. Anyway, that night, the Buddha is meditating and the four divine kings come to the Buddha. Now these are gods... Uh, the god of the north, the south and the east and the west and they're just above the earth realm so they're quite junior um, so they come and visit the Buddha and they light up his jungle thicket quote, like pillars of fire so again you have fire and there are four pillars of fire in this little jungle clearing blazing away all night and you can imagine Kasapa and the Ascetics are having a hard time getting to sleep because they look up, oh my god, those pillars of fire are still there. <laughs> anyway, next morning, Kasapa turns up to tell the Buddha that the meal is ready. They're feeding him. You know, he's, a, he's a guest. And um, he says, um, so, um, so you had some visitors last night? And the Buddha says, yes, yes, the four divine kings. They came. And so Kasapa is impressed but he continues to think um, very powerful that he's not enlightened like I am. So then you get this, this bizarre relationship that develops. The Buddha sticks around. He's like the man who came to dinner. And he won't leave. <laughs> and they can't get rid of him because he's so powerful. But So they keep him kind of tucked away and, you know hope that this whole thing blows over before it gets weird anyway next two nights the same events take place the first night Sakka ruler of the gods turns up blazing fire the next night Brahma Sahampati blazing fire remember him he was the one who persuaded the Buddha to teach mm. each morning Kasapa turns up to invite the Buddha to the meal I noticed you had a visitor last night yes yes Brahma Sahampati he just came in for a chat but again Kasapa responds in the same way next um, the Kasapa has a great sacrifice that has to be um, done now this is a big occasion people are coming from all over Magadha and Anga Anga is the territory to the east so th this is um, southeast Ganges valley and it has its own particular regional kind of spirituality Within this region, Kasapa is a very important figure. He's known all over the region. And when he has his annual great sacrifice, people come from all over to attend. Now he's worried because he hopes the Buddha doesn't actually show up and upstage him <laughs> by showing some, some, displaying some showy miracle. So he's a bit agitated. Um, because if he did, Kasapa might lose his customers. They might, might all go over to this, this new guy. Now the Buddha, of course, 
knows what he's thinking and so he makes a point of quietly disappearing and not interfering um, so what they sacrifice what are they sacrificing uh, doesn't say whether they were killing living beings or whether it was a, or, or a sacrifice more um, symbolic like the Vedic sacrifice involved ghee and various other things placed, um, put it into fire uh, so there's different forms of sacrifice we don't know which kind I suspect non-violent these are ascetics um, so I, I suspect symbolic things were tossed into the fire there'd be chanting ritual and so on um, now that means the Buddha decides he's not going to get fed by the ascetics so he goes on arms round and so he goes to Uttarakuru um, and gathers food there and, um, and then takes it to Lake Anottata in order to eat it. Now you're probably wondering where is Uttarakuru? Remember we talked about there were four great continents in the middle was Mount Muru um, the Buddha lives on the southern continent Uttar, Uttarakuru is the northern continent so the Buddha flies over Mount Muru <laughs> goes on arms round flies up to uh, to um, uh, to the lake which is in the Himalayas and has his breakfast there <laughs> um, next morning Kasapa turns up and says so where were you yesterday oh well I just went to <laughs> the northern continent for arms, arms round and then I had my breakfast at this lake in the Himalayas okay. Okay. Russia. <laughs> yes I wanted to avoid the rush hour um, so you know things that Kasper's getting really stressed by this stage it's like this is getting weirder and weirder anyway uh, that day the Buddha acquires a piece of discarded cloth now this is the way he makes his robe he collects discarded cloth <coughs> and um, um, he, he washes it and um, prepares it so he collects it so he, when he's got enough he can make a robe so he collects this bit of cloth and he wants to wash it except that there's no suitable washing place in his jungle thicket but no problem because Saka, king of the gods rockets down and creates a pond so he can wash it but then he realises that he can't wash it properly because he hasn't got a, a stone to beat it upon but no problem uh, Saka um, provides a stone for him and then he's got to hang it to dry but, and, and Saka who is still there um, there's, a, uh, there's a nice um, uh, no actually this time it's not Saka there's a Kaduka tree and the spirit of that tree the deva of that tree bends the branch down so it can be used as a washing line to dry out his, his cloth next morning Kasapa Kant turns up invited for breakfast hmm, that pond wasn't there before hmm I don't recall seeing that stone before that branch wasn't there before so, okay how did all this happen? well, I had to, I got this cloth and sucker turned up and then the tree deity bent the branch down okay, okay, very, very powerful but you're not enlightened like I am and then on successive days, Kasapa comes to invite Buddha to the meal. The Buddha says, look, just go on with, without me. Um, now, apparently the meal was actually taken at the fire chamber. So Kasapa walks back to the fire chamber, enters, and the Buddha's already sitting there. So he just kind of flew there. But not only that, he's sitting there with some fruit that he's just collected. Um except that the kind of fruit that he has is fruit that can't be find, found for the within 500 kilometres. So, same thing. On the last occasion, the Buddha's sitting there with a flower from the heaven of the 33 devas. <laughs> so, it's, you get this sense of just escalation here. Anyway, um, next day, the ascetics have to they, they, they're fire ascetics, they worship the fire so they use up a lot of wood 
So they're, they're constantly chopping up logs for the fire, but they, they, suddenly they can't split logs. They just can't do it. And Kasapa suspects the Buddha's intervention here, that he, the Buddha is interfering in some way. And sure enough, the Buddha turns up and says, you, you, you blokes seem to have a problem. Yeah, we, we just can't split logs. And then the Buddha goes, more or less, let the logs be split. And suddenly, whoop, all the logs are split. Go ahead, no problem. Um, and then the next day, um, this time they can split the logs, um, but they can't light the fires. But the Buddha turns up, ah, oh, okay, and the fires are lit. Um, and the next day they can split the logs, they can light the fires, but they can't put them out. So the Buddha turns up, oh, you got a problem there, and the fires go out. So every day the Buddha's just bashing away at Kasapa, and every day um, he, Kasapa has the same response. Yeah, very impressive, but you're not enlightened like I am. Anyway, this goes on for 24 days. Uh, until, oh, you get the eight midwinter nights. Um, during these nights, the coldest nights of the year, the, the ascetics perform a ceremonial bathing in the river. And the Buddha, in his compassion, creates 500 braziers, fire, fires, so they can warm themselves when they get out of the river. So you can see his metta, karuna, love and compassion coming out. But again, it's this showmanship, this extravagant display of magical powers. Uh, 24 days after all this begins, there's a flash flood. And the place where the Buddha is staying is completely flooded out. The next day, Kasapa is worried about him. So he comes in a boat, because then, you know, it's been a flash flood. The only way he can get there is by boat. And sure enough, um, everything, everywhere is covered by water except the Buddha's little jungle thicket which is completely dry and there's the Buddha sitting down there on the earth he sees the boat up there um, so he rises up in the air and he lands on Kasapa's boat and Kasapa responds as before now at this point the Buddha is thinking you know it's time to change tack. This, <laughs> he thinks, this foolish fellow will continue thinking like this for a long time. <laughs> and he decides he's got to put the boot in in a different way. And he says, Kasapa, you are not an arahant, nor are you on the way to becoming one. There is nothing in your practice by which you might become an arahant or enter into the way of becoming one. So this time, verbally, he just rips him to shreds. You're not an arahant. Forget about it. And there's nothing you are doing which will ever get you there. You are wasting your bloody time. Do you get this? Um, now, the customer at this point finally cracks. He's convinced. Why would he, at this point, finally crack? Basically, over the past 24 days, the Buddha has made it abundantly clear that he knows Kasapa's practice and can do Kasapa's practice much better than he can. He's much better at it, effortlessly. Um, if anybody knows where this practice leads to, it would have to be the Buddha, and nobody could doubt that anymore. Um, so Kasapa must have been very sincere in his aspiration because he's got a lot to lose. I mean, this guy is a major spiritual leader. He's got 500 disciples. He's known all across the, that eastern part of India. And now he's got someone telling him, what you're doing is a complete crock. You're completely deluded and you'll never make it to enlightenment. But He's a very sincere practitioner, and when he recognises that he's wrong, he admits it. And so he converts, he surrenders, and he converts. Um, but then he has to consult with his followers. He's got students, he's responsible for them. So he goes to them and, and 
says, okay, this is the situation. So I've decided I've, I've just got to, I've got to convert. What do you think? And they're kind of looking at each other and they say, we have long had faith in the great Samana. If you lead the highest life under him, we will do likewise. In other words, of all the 500 ascetics, he was the last one <laughs> to figure out what was going on. Which is, isn't it typical of leaders in general? They're always the last one to figure out what's going on. So then the ascetics, quote, um, took their hair, their dreadlocks, their belongings, and their implements for the fire sacrifice, and they dropped them into the water to be carried away. So they gather up all of the things that they use in their whole ritual thing, as well as they shave their hair, get rid of the dreadlocks, they get all this together, and they um, put it into the river. So the ascetics are abandoning a particular form of practice that they see as incompatible with the Buddha's way. But why do they put all this stuff in the river? Uh, it's easy to think that what they're doing is they're throwing them away. Uh, we got This is all junk now. You know, we used to think this was important, but clearly all this stuff is a superstitious claptrap, and we just chuck it away and <clears throat> show our contempt for our delusion of the past while we march into the light of the true faith. But actually, no, what they're doing is they're making an offering to the devas. And quite respectfully. Um, remember the story about King Arthur and his sword Excalibur. Uh, early in his career he received the sword from the Lady of the Lake and then it was that, that was the, the sacred sword that he used throughout his career and when he was dying I forget whether he threw the sword into the lake or he ordered somebody else to throw the sword into the lake Gawain, Gawain. so the sword is thrown Gawain probably had no idea what was going on why are you chucking away this sword flies through the air and before it hits the lake an arm comes out and grabs it and disappears He's offering it back to where it came from. It's an act of respect, not of contempt. And I think the ascetics are doing the same thing. Um, the ascetics are not rejecting their gods. What they're doing is changing their practice. That's a big difference. So Buddhism absorbs. It does not simply reject and classically, when Buddhism comes to a new, a new culture, it doesn't say, right, use lot. You're all doing the wrong thing. Stop doing it right now. And from now on, you do what we tell you to do. Rather, uh, they look around, okay, in this, these practices that you do, they're really good. Uh, perhaps you could understand them in a slightly different way. These practices over there, they're not so good. They're akrusala. They just lead to harm and suffering. You'd be better off without them. You're these gods you worship, keep worshipping them. Worship the same gods. There's no problem. These people you respect, you should continue to respect them. So, uh, Buddhism absorbs. It doesn't fight against. It doesn't reject. And um, this is happening here. And you notice also how everyone here takes for granted the existence of other worlds and that these worlds intersect with our world. So the, the world of the, the, the Naga Raja, the world of the Devas, of the river and of the forests, the world of people, these are different worlds, and yet and the, world, the worlds of the various gods, tree spirits, etc. These worlds, they're different worlds, but they intersect. And this is fundamental to the belief system at the time. Anyway, all this equipment floats downstream, and he's seen by Nadi Kasapa, Kasapa of the river. When he sees this, he fears disaster has overtaken his brother. And he and his students uh, rush up to see what's going on. But everyone's there. Everyone seems very happy, except they've shaved their 
their heads and they're not doing what they used to do. And um, Kasapa um, of the river asks his brother, is this better, Kasapa? And Kasapa says, it is. <coughs> and so um, Nadi Kasapa converts along with his group and they do the same thing. Meanwhile, the stuff is floating downstream. It turns up at the um, camping site of Gaia Kasapa and his followers. They go up. Same thing. Is this better, Kasapa? Yes, it is. So they join in as well. Um, so now there's... How many, how many are we talking about? So how have all these people support... How have all these ethnicities supported during this? How are they doing? Uh, by the lay people, like um, bhikkhus. There's, um, there's, this is a... This, this, this group, like 500 people, 1,000 people here now. Uh, yeah, these are... Yeah, it is 1,000, isn't it? Uh, the numbers, of course, are symbolic. They're not literal. So 500 is a very great number. You know, 300 is a lot, <coughs> and 200 is a lot, but not so much. So much. When you see these numbers in, in the Buddha's teachings, and this is typical of oral traditions, they're symbolic. They're not to be taken literally. But still, there must have been... I mean, were they, did the lay supporters come out and just kind of cook up a meal like they did? Well, the, the, we don't know the exact rules. It could be that the, these ascetics um, could cook. Mm. So they might have collected... Because a lot of ascetics would collect grain that hadn't been cooked. So they could store out grain and then cook it when they need it. One of the rules in the vinegar is that a bhikkhu cannot accept uncooked grain. It must be already cooked in order to prevent food storage. Um, so we don't know exactly what their, their rules were. But this was India at this time was one of the wealthiest, most cosmopolitan, most sophisticated societies on earth. It could support a large number of Samanas and Brahmanas. <coughs> so then the Buddha takes um, now at this point he's converted them through his demonstration of power through his superior shamanic abilities he has not taught them anything at all and he takes them away from this area and he goes to Gaya Sisa which is a hill um, near Gaia. Gaia, here, this is flat f plain, and in the middle of this plain, there's this is hill called Gaia Sisa, Gaia Head. And he takes them to that hill, takes them up to the top, and there he teaches them Adita Sutta, burning. And this is the third discourse that completes tr the trilogy. But you notice the amount of work he's done to prepare them for this. He's softened them up for almost a month just so that he can now hit them with the Dharma and of course the Buddha being the Buddha it will be a Dharma suitable for them, for this particular audience. Um, so tomorrow night we'll have a look at that one. We'll look at the third discourse. So tonight is just bedtime stories. <laughs> And uh, tomorrow night we uh, go go into the into the third teaching. Yeah, Katie. Um, you said there was this famous passage that I had gave you there a few times where they go singly, mm. and yet all the I haven't read it, but all the other ones that I've read, they're always in a group. So when did he change his mind? He might have changed it later when he started working out the rules, because yeah. at this time there's no rules. The rules only developed gradually over time when people did something that they thought, no, we shouldn't do this, so let's not do that. So this, this is a, part, a time of minimum rules and maximum enlightenment. And there's a, a, another famous incident where many years later somebody asked the Buddha, when we, all, when we started out, we had bugger all rules and lots of enlightenment, now we've got heaps of rules <laughs> and not much enlightenment. So what happened? And the Buddha basically says, yeah, that's the way it is. <laughs> that's the way it's been. Yes. <laughs> where, where does this 
the Maha Vaga of um, it's in the, it's the opening section of Vinaya Pitaka <coughs> and Maha is it Mahakanda? I think it might be called Mahakanda but it's the it starts with this history of the Sangha mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the earlier these are the earliest layer of stories so it's basically the, the, in the Vinaya it's first you get the story of how the Sangha began mm-hmm. they're in there there weren't, there weren't many stories about the Buddha's magical powers, were there? There were only a few occasions. No. In fact, later on, he, he, he refuses to in, in, engage in them. Except Mala, for example, he engaged in magical powers. Mm. But very, so from then on, very rarely, he was very discreet from then on. But here, he's just throwing it around. <laughs> and um, again, it's the you get this quality of the, of the shamanic power, and that kind of po- that aspect of him pops up. So, for example, he, when all this is over, he goes to Rajagaha, sets up there. Then he gets invited by a rich supporter. Who? What's his name? The guy who's the model for generosity, Anatta Pindika. He invites him come to Savati, and I'll build you a monastery. So he moves to Savati. And there he meets King Pasanadi. Now if he's going to make it in Kosala, he has to get on with Pasanadi because Pasanadi is a crazy tyrant. And he has the first encounter and manages to convert him. But now the Buddha is quite young at this time. And Pasanadi is also quite young. I think they're actually the same age. And Pasanadi rocks up and says, you know, so... Um, you, you claim to be fully enlightened. Well, you know, a whole number of big-time teachers have come through here because this is the most important part of the world, mate. And none of them, and these are old and venerable and respected teachers, none of them have claimed to be fully enlightened. Here you are, some young whippersnapper, nobody's heard of, just wander into town, and you claim to be fully enlightened. Why on earth should anyone take you seriously? And the subtext being... Why shouldn't I just consider you a fraud, drag you off to prison and chop you in pieces? And um, the Buddha replies something along the lines of there are know, three or four things, yeah. four things that you, sh- you must never underestimate because of their youth. A fire, a katya, a, a warrior, a fighter, a fire, fighter, a snake, and and a, Buddha. and a Buddha and so you've got Pasanadi who is not so subtly threatening him and the Buddha comes back and threatens him even more mess with me mate and it will be a big mistake <laughs> <laughs> and this is the same age as Buddha yeah and so he's a, he's a mighty warrior yeah. himself, and so he's, he's sort of talking his language. Yeah, he understands power. Doing a bit of shirt fronting there. Yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's mutual shirt fronting. And the Buddha wins. And Pasanadi says, okay. <laughs> I can see I've got a venomous young snake in my garden, and I will let him alone. So this this shamanic powerful side of the Buddha it's part it's, it's there but it tends to be kind of not noticed so much and this is, this is um, it's um, it's not exaggerated but it's um, highlighted in Tibetan teachings like the Mahayana teachings like mm. the powers the magical powers like yeah. the Buddha's well, golden lotus and all that sort of stuff yeah because they they have a strong shamanic tradition. Yeah. And again, Buddhism absorbs. Like it goes to a place with strong shamanic tradition, it just buddhizes it. Even in, even in Zen, there's, there's, there's a shamanic tradition in, in the Zen stories. It pops up there, but again, it's quite on the side. It tends not to be noticed. So, Patrick, this, this term, uh, the Buddha, that was an ideal... Before the before the Buddha was enlightened, yeah. Uh, so I think um, they used it. They used that term. Yeah, 
they used the term Jina, uh, Mahavira, who was older than the Buddha, claimed to be fully enlightened. Um, he was Jina, the conqueror. But his, he was also Buddha, awakened. But Jina was the major title, Buddha was a minor. With the Buddha, Buddha was his major title, but Jina was a minor one. So he just took the same language. I think Tathagata was also would have been something he borrowed. So some of the basic terms he borrowed. So that, this is part of the yoga tradition. Um, you have shamans, you have yogis, you have ascetics. And you have whole groups of these people with this ideal of enlightenment. You have the Brahmin priests, and they don't have an ideal of enlightenment. They just follow the law and have, you know, control society as the way it should. So you have this tremendous multicultural variety at the time of the Buddha. All sorts of, all sorts of strange characters. Mm. And the Buddha kind of flowing among them and getting converts from, from all of these different parts of society and bringing them together under one roof. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.